You can go ahead, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1, John chapter 1. If you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version and still John chapter 1. We're in week four of Gospel of John series, we just started it, uh, it's going by fast. We're going to blink and it's going to be 2024 and we're going to be done. Um, so we're picking up here, if you remember last week, we saw the testimony of John the Baptist. So John just, unlike the other four gospels, he just picks right up with Jesus, kind of beginning with his ministry, his earthly ministry. John skips all the genealogies and that this is how he was born and just gets right into the person of Jesus Christ on the scene, um, telling us why he was sent, who he was, his identity, and we got the testimony of John the Baptist who came on the scene as somebody who was paving the way, somebody who was there to introduce who the person of Jesus was that was gonna be coming on the scene. And we saw that it was, it was a, just a powerful testimony that John the Baptist gave uh, evidence of in terms of Jesus being the son of God who's coming to take away the sins of the world. And that's where we're picking up with today in verse 35 as Jesus calls his first disciples. And let's just read, starting with verse 35. It says, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what we're gonna look at this morning is that when Jesus calls men, when Jesus calls women to come and follow him, he opens their eyes. He opens their eyes to behold his glory on earth as it is in heaven. You know, every day in October, uh, I annoyingly tell Melissa, I say this line to her and she starts rolling her eyes before I even say it. But I say this, I say, 
man, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. October is my favorite month of the year, and I'm just afraid that it's passing by so fast. It feels like it goes by quicker than the other months, and I think it might. I don't know how science works. Um, It might just be quicker. Um, But I don't want to be so caught up in all the hustle and the bustle that I forget to pause and see the season in all of its glory, you know? Um, Because the beauty is out there, and it's just inviting me in. And it's inviting me in to come and see. And so the the question for me as I'm just zooming through October is where am I? Like what am I doing? What am I doing that makes it so hard for me just to pause and step back and to take in the beauty and to see it? And we get a sense of this as Jesus begins to call here his first disciples in John chapter 1. And this, we see two things at play with this. We see, number one, the invitation of Jesus as he calls these men. And then we see the illumination of Jesus as he opens their eyes to see what he's calling them to. Which, by the way, is a lot of stuff, but it, it, most, it, it most specifically is he calls people to himself, right? Yes, he calls people to be ambassadors. Yes, he calls people to ministry. Yes, he calls you to be a light and a reflection but, but who is all of this pointing to and who is all of this of? Well, it, it's Jesus Christ. First and foremost, Jesus calls you and he calls me to himself. So the first thing we see here as we pick up in 35 is the invitation of Jesus. And we see John's disciples on the Decenes. And, and John the Baptist, he has this, I guess it's kind of a signature way of announcing Jesus, which again, we saw it in the previous verses, which is, behold the Lamb of God. And when we looked last week, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here's what's interesting. With only those words spoken, two of John the Baptist's disciples end up following Jesus to the place where he was saying. They said, hey, where are you at? Where are you staying? Can we go where you're at? Can we get just a a closer view to who you are and the words that you're speaking and the person that you are? And so they say, we want to go where you are. And he invites them in to come and experience the person of Jesus. He invites them to come and see who he is. There's this story about Charles Spurgeon, who was an old preacher from the 1800s and a janitor. And he was at a a big auditorium one time getting ready to preach. And he was testing the sound. He was testing the acoustics. I don't know with what, since they didn't have amplification when he was preaching. But I think he was testing to see how his voice kind of was hitting against the walls and how loud maybe he needed to speak in order for everybody to hear as it was traveling. And um, the, the story goes that the janitor heard him speak these words. So he, he, to test the acoustics, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the passage he was using for his test. And it said that the janitor heard those words as he was standing in the back and he was converted on the spot. And it gives testimony, it gives evidence that stuff happens when Jesus speaks. When the word of God is proclaimed, when it actually gets into the nitty gritty of our hearts to affect change, change is what's affected, right? We see that happening. We see that happening here when Jesus is calling his first disciples. When God's word goes out, people come in. 
It's just what happens. And two of those people John mentions are Andrew and Peter, right? So we see Simon's brother, Simon Peter's brother Andrew, goes to him and says, hey, we have found the Messiah. And when they come to Jesus, what does Jesus do? But he immediately gives Simon a new name and calls him Cephas or, or Peter. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's acknowledging his call to them. He's saying, Peter, you're mine now. You're mine. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you a better name. I'm going to give you something that's a little more representative of who you are now that you're mine and the plans that I have for you. And we remember later on, Jesus will say, you are a rock, Peter, and on you I will build my church. So we see this ownership that Jesus takes even of Peter right at the very beginning where he renames him. And then the next day we see that he calls uh, a guy named Philip who then goes and calls his friend Nathaniel. And the messaging is similar with both Andrew and Philip in that they go to the people that they know, their friends, their family, and they say this. They say, hey, we have found Jesus of Nazareth. We have found the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. And so what we see here at the very beginning of these passages is we see this pattern. We see a pattern in the way that Jesus calls people, both directly and, and indirectly, which, by the way, is, is still directly, right? It is kind of a here I am or there he is kind of approach. And by the way, that is... That is your story of salvation, too, if you have a story of salvation. That's my story of salvation, too. There was a moment where you, I don't know, you read God's word or you heard a sermon preached or you had a conversation with another Christian or there can be 20 other ways that this happened. And you became a follower of Jesus. There was some internal call That happened to you where you finally saw the light of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ, and you responded to that truth. That's what happened to all of us. And again, Jesus invites his people through different means. But if and when he calls, we answer. Why? Because his call is effective. It's called an effective call. When he calls, we can't but not answer if he has opened up our hearts to receive it. A little hard to get our head wrapped around that, but that's what we see in Scripture. And what's so different for us about that is because, man, nobody answers when we call, right? I mean, you got kids, you got pets, you got coworkers, you got friends. I mean, you get on that cell phone, you call, and it rings for an hour. Nobody picks up. Nobody calls. When I call my cat, that dude never comes. Might be because he doesn't know his name. My call is not effective, but the call of Jesus is effective. He calls Andrew, who then calls Peter. He calls Philip, who then calls Nathaniel. And we see this kind of funny and interesting exchange between Jesus and Nathaniel, right? You got to love Nathaniel's reply when Philip tells him about Jesus. You got to just love how honest this brother is. His first response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Do you like that? He, doesn't, he's not even, he didn't even hear what Andrew said. All he heard was that 
Andrew had located the Messiah and this guy was from Nazareth, the first thing Nathaniel thinks is, that town? That place? Like, I've seen that place. I don't know what good can come out of Nazareth. And you got to love just the honesty. And you know what? Jesus has time for that. That's what we see here. We see Jesus almost kind of playfully come back to Nathanael. We see that Jesus has time for the first thing that comes out of Nathanael's mouth. Just like he has time for the first thing that comes out of your mouth or your mind when you are confronted with Jesus. And by the way, not just the first time you're confronted with the way that Jesus is moving and working and speaking, but like the 20,000th time that that happens. He has time for that, right? It shows the character of Jesus right here with Nathaniel. And I love it. It was, it was an honest question. Can anything good come out of that place? We ask, is Jesus really good? Can anything good come when I look around and I see this world and I see the news and I see the junk and I see social media is Jesus really good? Can anything good come out of this place that you're always up there telling us that Jesus is fully in control over? We ask that question. Jesus provides an answer for us by beckoning us in, by asking us to come and see, by saying, taste and see that God is good. Taste and see. He didn't say see and taste. He said, taste and see experience me, let your eyes be open. Come and see, he says. Jesus looks at Nathanael and he says, here comes an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Like, I see you, Nathanael. I see your life. I see the way that you've been faithful. I see the way that you have served me. Nathanael's like, wait, how do you know me? And Jesus, showing his divine power, tells him that he saw him under the fig tree before Philip came. And this just floors Nathanael, who immediately becomes convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. Now, this statement about the fig tree, it's a little strange. Um, it's been, been discussed for years among pastors and theologians and all, the, all this kind of stuff. But here's what a fig tree represented back then. A fig tree was a representation of prosperity to the Israelites. It was part of the blessing of the promised land. It was represented by the, by the symbol of a fig tree. It was a sign that God's discipline on his people had been removed and that the promised Messiah was coming. So the fig tree has some symbolic significance when we kind of look at Nathaniel under the fig tree. So again, we don't know what he was doing under that fig tree. Whatever he was doing, it seems likely given the way that Jesus addresses him, that it was some expression of his faithfulness to God. And Nathan realizes when he sees Jesus that this is the promised Messiah that he has been waiting for. Caused us to think about the things that God uses in our lives to invite us into his kingdom. It really boggles the mind when you start thinking about all the different things in your life. And again, these windy roads that we're on, right, in life. And somehow God is just, he's with us on that road. Like that's not windy to him. It's only windy to us. And we think about all the different ways that God wound through your life to bring you even to this moment right now, sitting in those incredibly comfortable chairs, right? 
You think about that. You think about all the different things that God uses. He uses Andrew. And he uses Philip to bring Peter and Nathaniel to him. He uses a moment with Nathaniel under a fig tree of all things to convince him that he is the Messiah. What has God used in your life? What are some of those things as you just can pause for a minute and reflect? Who was it? What was it that God used in your life to open your eyes? What were the people, the places, the moments that come to mind? Maybe he's using this moment. Maybe he's using you for someone else's moment in this moment. He's preparing you for that moment when you will be an Andrew or you will be a Nathaniel and you will realize, I didn't realize the whole time I was doing all this junk and this stuff that Jesus was right there and he was just waiting to call me. It boggles the mind, really. I've told this story before, but I think about my dad's conversion. It was so weird, you know. My mom had been a believer for about a year, and he was, this dude was not having it. He was not having it. And uh, he was working up at LAX. We, li- we, lived in a, we lived near LA at the time. And uh, he was in a phone booth. I cannot explain what a phone booth is if you don't know what that is. But it's a box with a phone in it, not a cell phone. Um, <laughs> But he was in a phone booth at LAX. It was the rarest of nights because it was raining and it never rains in California. And he was sitting there and he was way, he was trying to make a call and it just kept going busy on him. And a busy signal is this thing that when you try to call, they would make this sound, it would go, ah, ah, and you couldn't get through. You have to hang up, you have to dial again. I'm so glad they fixed that with cell phones. I'm so glad they fixed that, it was horrible. So he's in there and they, somebody had left a track just sitting on the little ledge that they would have for you to put your stuff. And so he just read it. And um, it just spoke all the words that my mom had been speaking to him for a year. And for some reason in that moment, he said it was like the blinders fell from his eyes. And it all made sense. He said it hadn't made sense before and he didn't want it to make sense before. And for some reason... On that night at LAX, in the rain, at the phone booth, reading that track, the Lord opened his eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ. And he said he prayed right in that moment, Lord, I get it. I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need to be made whole. I want to be right with you. That's how simple it was for my dad. His life was forever changed. His marriage was forever changed. His family forever changed. For my mom, it was a neighbor. It was just some woman that lived down the street that went to the church that my parents eventually went to. She just showed my mom kindness, just hung out with her, invited her over, told her about Jesus, harassed my mom in a good way. For me, it was my mom. I remember the, I remember the night in my bedroom and she was telling me about Jesus. And I don't know what it was, but even as a young kid, it just clicked. It just made sense. I understood who I was as a seven-year-old sinner. I understood that Jesus had to die. I don't know. The Lord gave me some illumination in that moment, and I received him as my Savior. It's amazing the way the Lord works. It's amazing what he uses. And then Jesus has this interesting reply to Nathaniel, and this is where I kind of love the interplay here, right? He's like, you believe in me because I saw you under the fig tree? 
you'll see greater miracles than this. It's like Jesus is saying, to be honest, this fig tree thing sounds impressive, but you have not seen anything yet. Let me just tell you, right? God the Father has sent me to reunite heaven and earth and bring restoration to all things. Which is, by the way, why he mentions the imagery at the end of, the, of our passage here of angels ascending and descending. We'll unpack that in a few minutes. But the main thing we observe here in the text is that Jesus invites. Jesus initiates, right? Nobody sends you an invitation to your own wedding. It just doesn't work that way, right? You send the invitation. You invite people to be witnesses to your marriage union. Jesus is the one who calls us, who makes us his disciples. And if you're somebody who follows Jesus, it means you are his disciple. And the reason you followed him is because he sought you out. And this is simultaneously astonishing and beautiful, right? Because it means the initial call of Jesus wasn't due in part to you waking up one day and saying, oh, I think I'll give Jesus a shot right? It may feel that way. But in actuality, Jesus invites you to follow him. And then he not only does that, but he gives you the faith you need for your salvation. We'll see this in probably a few months in John chapter six, when Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What a beautiful thing. All this effort of my mom, of Lorraine, going after my dad. I think God probably used that. But at the end of the day, Jesus was the one who pulled my dad in on that rainy night in that phone booth at LAX with probably a theologically horrible track, right? So he even used that. I think I know the track he had. I'm not getting into that, right? But it's incredible. Nowhere do we see anybody approaching Jesus that he hasn't first invited. The invitation of Jesus, by grace we have been saved. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. It's like this, right? It's like when somebody gives you a gift this Christmas. And I hope somebody gives you a gift this Christmas. But it's a decision that resides completely with the giver, isn't it? Your decision to receive the gift is only based on the fact that there's what? A gift to receive. By receiving the gift, it doesn't mean you had any part in purchasing the gift. No. The gift is what? It's purchased. The gift is given and you receive it because the giver has purchased it and offered it to you. When Jesus called you, he also gave you the faith to answer that call. Or otherwise, you'd never receive the gift that is that call. You'd never want it. This is the beauty and the mystery, by the way. If your head is already starting to go in circles, mine too. But this is the beauty and the mystery of salvation. That's the invitation of Jesus that we see to Andrew, to Peter, to Philip, to Nathaniel. Which leads to the illumination of Jesus in verse 49 through 51. Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So after Jesus tells Nathanael that he saw him under the fig tree, he has this strange line in verse 51 about the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What on earth? What's he going on about there? What does that even mean? Well, this line takes us back to Genesis 28. Let's just turn back to Genesis 28 really quick. And it tells us a little bit about the story of Jacob, who, by the way, was somebody whose name was changed to Israel. And this is just a, this is a, this is a story, right? We could, do a, we could probably do a year-long series on, on Jacob's story alone. Jacob was one of two brothers born. They were twins. He was the younger of the two. And he had cheated his brother Esau out of the birthright. In other words, out of being the, per, the person, the oldest born son that got to uh, inherit everything that came from, from their father, Isaac. And so he did that. Esau, understandably, was not super pumped. And so Jacob was fleeing for his life. And at the end of his first day, after traveling through the wilderness, Jacob collapses. He is in exhaustion. He is alone. He is tired. He is afraid, and God gives him this vision in Genesis 28, verse 11. It says, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. By the way, this vision to Jacob was meant to encourage him at this time by showing him that God was with him, that he wasn't alone, that he actually had all of heaven uh, traveling with him, sending him their help from literally the throne room of God. And so in that moment, Jacob was encouraged. He remembered who was with him, even though he was this cheating, conniving dude that was getting what he wanted through means that, that God would not have been pleased with or happy with, and yet God was still with him in those moments. And so what Jesus means by quoting this passage to Nathaniel is this, is that he is the ladder now. He is the conduit between heaven and earth, accomplishing the will of the Father for his people. Jacob couldn't see it at the time. Jacob couldn't see that God was close to him until his eyes were opened with this vision that God had given him. And it's the same thing for Nathaniel. He couldn't see that God had come close to him until Jesus opened his eyes and said, I am the one that is bridging the gap. I am the one that is bridging the gap between God, holy God, and sinful mankind. And in that moment, Nathaniel's eyes were opened. And what we see with that is that Jesus not only invites us to himself, but he also brings illumination of himself. He opens our eyes to his master plan for the world. It's stuff that we couldn't know before we see it happening. Everybody loves gender reveal parties now, right? We don't know the sex of the baby until the couple pops the balloon and all the pink or the blue glitter comes out and gets glitter on you, of which you probably still have on you because you can't get glitter off of you, right? That's another story. But it's like that. 
in the sense that now we can see because it's been revealed. And like Jacob and Nathaniel, God opens our eyes to the, the completed glory that Jacob couldn't quite see. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And what that tells us in this moment is that he had to become human in order to die for the sins of the people and create peace on earth and goodwill to men. Nathaniel got to see the completed glory of what Jacob saw in his vision, ultimately Jesus, which is what we get to see, which is what we have access to. So four times in this passage, we read the phrase, come and see, or you will see. And this requires us as we close this morning to ask the question, what am I not seeing? What could I be missing? What, what is something in my life that causes me to stand back and, and have my vision obscured? Because here's the thing, we might be faithful to God and still be missing what he's faithfully doing in front of our eyes. So what do these passages compel us to see that we might be missing? Well, the first one is this, that God uses us to be his invitation to Jesus. And Andrew and Philip, so underrated, so understated. I don't know the difference between those two words. But they are responsible for leading Peter and Nathaniel to Jesus. All they said was, we found Jesus. Come and see. And right there in those simple words, you could argue that we have the essence of evangelism, right? Come and see Jesus. We make that very complicated, don't we? Um, we think we have to have just this comprehensive knowledge of scripture and theology. And yet, when we see the conversion, when we see Philip and Nathaniel and Andrew and Peter coming to Jesus, the words are so simple. And sometimes we're, we're pulled back, right? It's like, Ronnie, guys like you, you are the ones, right? You, you know everything there is to know about the Bible. That's funny, right? But that's kind of what we think. That's the mentality. Get the paid staff to do evangelism. But this wasn't paid staff. These were just a couple of dudes, right? These were some fishermen. These were not people that had, you know, all kinds of seminary degrees, not even close. These were people that just were reporting on what they saw, right? And that's us. Imagine the people around you right now. Think about that. Think about some of the people that exist in your sphere. Imagine the people around you. There's so much loneliness and discontentedness, struggle, loss. Look what you have to offer. Hey, why don't you come and see Jesus with me? Because God uses you to be that invitation to Jesus. He used Andrew. He used Philip. He uses us. It's the weirdest method of evangelism ever. It seems like there's a better way, but that's the way that he chose, right? Secondly, these passages compel us to see that there is evidence of grace in our life if we stop and we look, right? Jesus is sovereign. It means he has things under his control. He is alive. He is working. You have to open your eyes to the ways that you can see 
Jesus working because there are so many, even in your most difficult season. One of the things about the sellers right now is they're, is they're going through this time of grief is to hear them speak. They, they talk so wonderfully of all that God is doing in their lives to bless them. I mean, that is a work of the Lord, right? Even in their most difficult season, they acknowledge the goodness of God. Jesus is the ladder in your life, right? All that is available in heaven is yours on earth because Jesus came and he conquered. He conquered the earth. He conquered sin. And even in the tension, you can see the tendernesses of Jesus everywhere. You can see it if you just stop and you look and you pray that God would open your eyes again. Come behold the works of the Lord, it says in Psalm 46. How he's brought desolation on the earth. How he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. How he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. How he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Be stilled. Stop stirring and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. How good would it be for you to be still today and behold the works of the Lord and see all the ways that Jesus is actually illuminating his work and his presence in your life in some of the most difficult seasons. If only we would stop and say, open my eyes to this because this stuff is clouding my vision. That's what we see happening here to Nathaniel. And then finally, this passage, these passages compel us to see that we should look to unseen things with eyes of hope. If you come to Jesus, what these passages tell us is that we will see the unseen. Well, that sounds like a contradiction, right? What it means is that your eyes will be open to blessings that you would have never known otherwise if you hadn't answered that call that Jesus gave you, right? You will be like Jacob in Genesis 28, if you go up to verse 16, when he awoke from his sleep and he said this, listen to this, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. How many things work in our lives that we don't see how they work, but we trust that they're working. I think about my furnace at home. I love that furnace, especially when it gets cold, right? I can't see how the furnace in my house works. And if you know me, if I could, really wouldn't matter, right? But I can't see how it works. It's housed in this enclosure, but I feel the heat of it whenever I'm in my house. Even though I don't see it working, I still look to that furnace to warm me when it's cold. It's still there working. So we look to things that are unseen, that are working, that help increase our faith and strengthen us before the Lord. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory as we what? Look to things that are not to look to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. Look to things that you can't see, trusting that the Lord is doing something that may be obscured to you, but who are you? 
I mean, nobody has spiritual x-ray vision, right? The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. It's better that there are things that we pursue that we can't see through faith because those are the internal things. And those are the things that are reshaping our hearts, right? Because we see in a mirror dimly today in our current state, but then face to face. We know in part right now, we don't have the whole picture, but then we shall know fully as we have been fully known, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. And here's our hope. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, for the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations 3.25. The Christian life is one of waiting, believing, and seeing. So today, we trust in the character of Jesus Christ. He is alive. He is moving. He is loving you in a myriad of ways. You will see him if you come to him and say, Jesus, just open my eyes to what I've been blind to. You will see him. More importantly, he sees you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of encouragement as we see the way, Jesus, that you called these first disciples. As you opened their eyes, you invited them in, you illuminated their hearts for the good and the glory that is found in you. Lord, open our eyes today. What are we missing, Lord? What are the difficult things in our life and the challenges and the struggles? What are the things that are clouding our vision? Sometimes you don't remove those things immediately. But when we come to you and we acknowledge that our vision might be clouded, you do a work. You start to open up our mind and our heart to those things that may be obscuring our vision because we want to see you clearly. We don't want the cares of this world to continue to cloak us and cover us in their tensions and anxieties. So Lord, open up our hearts, renew our vision for you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.